Blog Talk Radio. This is Lama Tantrapa. Welcome to the Secrets of Qigong Masters, the talk show brought to you by Academy of Qidao, the first and only school in the world offering professional education in Tai Chi and Qigong coaching. To find out about the Qigong and Tai Chi coaching programs and to learn how you too can become a certified Tai Chi or Qigong coach, please go to qigongcoaching.com. This show is also brought to you by Mastery Magazine, sponsoring the summits of Qigong Masters. To find out how you too can enjoy listening and watching to the interviews with some of the top experts in Qigong, Tai Chi, and related disciplines, please go to qigongmasters.com. Today, I'm delighted to introduce to you Brian Traskas, who is a body, mind, and energetics expert who believes that regardless of anyone's current circumstances, everyone is capable of leading a deeply meaningful and self-actualized life. He's the founder and director of the Institute of Rehabilitative Qigong and Tai Chi, specializing in integrating Western body-mind science and ancient healing arts of Qigong and Tai Chi. He is a practicing physical therapist and a student of Eastern movement and meditation practices for over two decades. Welcome to our show, Brian. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Lama. Thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Well, I would like to uh, start off with um, a simple and natural question about your background. I understand that you have a background in physical therapy, but uh, for most of our listeners and viewers, it would probably be interesting to find out about your background in uh, Eastern modalities, such as IT, Qigong, or other disciplines you study. Oh, absolutely. So, yes, you're absolutely right. I've uh, been a practicing physical therapist for the last 25 years, and in that vein, have also received uh, certifications and licensure in massage therapy and um, multiple manual therapies and certified strength conditioning specialties, and then also meditation practices and Qigong and Tai Chi practices as well. I've been practicing Qigong and Tai Chi for about, about 20 years or so. Just after I graduated from PT school, found myself in that, in that realm and was really intrigued by the possibilities that Qigong and Tai Chi offered, especially around the idea of our physiology, how we could in some ways consciously manage our physiology. I was really, really intrigued by that. And especially around healing as well, since I was in the healing field. Interesting. And what kind of Tai Chi and what kind of Qigong did you study? Well, I've uh, done multiple different practices. I, I practice Sun style primarily as a Tai Chi form. I was exposed to some Chen forms very early, actually as a part of my massage therapy school training. I went to school at the Massage Therapy Institute in Colorado, and the director of that program was a huge advocate of Tai Chi practice and also a really gifted energetic healer and practitioner. And as a part of that program, he actually taught a Chen style form that we did every, every week as a part of that program. And I absolutely loved it. I was very active outdoors person doing a lot of biking and rock climbing and hiking and that kind of stuff. And I found that the, the Tai Chi practice was so valuable for me to help with recovery, to help with performance, to help with just aches and pains, and also to manage a, a very longstanding back pain issue that I was dealing with at the time. So that was uh, very early on, had that Chen style intro introduction. And that wove into more Qigong practices, integral practices like with Roger Yanka, 
and some Tai Chi for health practices with Paul Lam's group, those types of uh, things. I really trended more towards, again, the Tai Chi and Qigong for health practices. I see. And uh, perhaps you can share with us a little bit about uh, your uh, Qigong studies. What types of Qigong, what styles uh, did you learn and uh, from whom? Well, I did some Wuji Qigong practices with, uh, with Gary Garipoli and Daisy Lee. I've done some, uh, again, integral Qigong practices with Roger Yanka. That's probably been some of the deepest study I've been through, uh, done quite a bit of study with Roger in his integral programs, which has just been fantastic and wonderful. And then I've also picked up some evidence-based Qigong practices from Master Yang Yang as well. Wow. Uh, so uh, essentially you have uh, been exposed to some really great teachers who do not teach what you currently practice. I understand that you basically must have developed your own approach to applying Tai Chi and Qigong uh, towards rehabilitation. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, my, my, my experience has been a bit eclectic and always bouncing back and forth between the realms of Western and Eastern. Of course, being in the Western rehabilitation field, we always like to say we need to leave breadcrumbs to what we do. We've always, there always has to be an evidence base. In the Western system, we have to be able to document, we have to be able to um, validate what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And early on in my Qigong Tai Chi practices, I really wanted to create a bridge. I wanted to be able to start sharing Tai Chi and Qigong with my patients. At that time, I was working at Craig Hospital in Colorado, which, was a, which is a world-renowned hospital for uh, people suffering and surviving from both traumatic brain injury as well as spinal cord injury. So where is it located? It's in uh, Englewood, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so I practiced there for uh, much of the 90s and, and early 2000s. And I found that Qigong and Tai Chi could be, were perfect, really wonderfully perfect modalities for what we call neuromuscular re-education re or helping people, of course, regain balance, fluidity, coordination, those types of things. Right. And I, but I was still missing something. I was really trying to integrate, but I was still missing something, and I wasn't sure what it was. I was, and so my practice kind of faded off a little bit. I moved away from it slightly. And then at some point, this is probably about 15 years ago, I actually had an accident, and I separated both shoulders. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't lift my arms for a, a, quite a long period of time. And I joke about this with other rehab professionals saying, you know, you go into the clinic and your patients are in better shape than you are kind of thing. You know, you're, you're wanting to actually demonstrate things for them and you can't because it, it could, I couldn't lift my arm. So I was trying all of the typical Western physical therapy things that we would do, the e-stim, the ice, the ultrasound, some basic linear movement patterns, those kinds of things, and didn't get better at all. I was really, I was really getting very depressed, very anxious, very upset, and still had all this physical pain. And the only thing that I could actually do that was painless and felt productive to me was a very simple Qigong practice, all below my level of, of shoulder. So I had to modify Qigong practices to get them all down below shoulder level, because that's the only place I could use my arms. Right. And I dedicated every day. I, I practiced morning, you know, afternoon, and then again in the evening, this very simple breath and movement practice, mm -hmm. re really based a lot on the Wuji Qigong practices and a couple other things that I had um, discovered along the way also. And within a very short period of time, and you won't be surprised by this, I'm sure, Lama, that my depression went away. 
So I, I actually, I started to feel much lighter. I started to feel more energized in my body. I started to feel really optimistic. And what was shocking to me about that is that physically, actually, I hadn't changed much yet. But emotionally, I was feeling better. Makes little sense. And I, that was so encouraging to me that I kept going. Right. Then, you were basically tapping into the flow of chi. Yeah. And if you're feeling more life force flowing through your system, you can't be depressed. It's yeah. like it's really virtually impossible to be depressed when you have more energy flowing. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was really magic. And I, so I kept going. And within just a very short period of time after that, my, my physical function started to rapidly improve. And I was able to then all of a sudden get my arms up to shoulder height. So I had to kind of dig out some practices that worked just at shoulder height, I continued working there. And then all of a sudden I was able to go above shoulder height. So I found modified practices based on being able to go over shoulder height. And what I realized I had done after I went through that process and very quickly, actually, very expediently was able to regain full range of motion and full strength with very little discomfort and pain at all. And I felt really great in my body, my attitude, my psychology, my physiology. I felt better than I probably had ever had before in, the, in that process. I had to figure out what, what happened. So I dove into the science of all those kinds of things. But what I really realized what I did was I worked along what we call a protocol method. As rehabilitation professionals, we follow what we call protocols. So if someone has like a rotator cuff injury or someone has a slap repair or something, you know, where they, where they repair the labrum in the shoulder or anything that happens in the body. There's very little vascularization in the labrum. Right. We follow a protocol, and the protocol has a kind of a mapped sequence of things we do in order to move the healing along in a, in a, in a sequential way, and at the same time, protecting the body from re-injuring in that process. Exactly, and also addressing probably uh, some of the issues of uh, compensation that you inevitably develop. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so what I had actually done was I actually created a Qigong protocol, Qigong and Tai Chi protocol, specifically for healing neck and shoulder issues. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was so amazing to me that I just, I, then I understood that thing I was missing before about not being able to actually know how to specifically apply it to my clients. I was missing that link. All of a sudden, the link was very evident to me because I'd gone through it myself. Right. And the, pro- the process just went boom, boom, boom. The process just fell in the line. I was able to organize it and I was able to actually start teaching it in a really systematic way to my patients. And the, and the results we got were just amazing. Well, obviously, being a, a wounded healer mm-hmm. uh, is an important aspect of being a successful healer because if you never experience this firsthand, sometimes you don't know how to really uh, go through this process from the inside of it and so in a sense it's kind of helpful and you may have even have attitude towards it like it was not just an accident that hurt you it might be a blessing in disguise totally a blessing yeah absolutely i'm so grateful for two things i'm hugely grateful for in my life and that that shoulder injury is one of those things and the the other thing is the is the chronic back pain that I've had experience in my life that I also, you know, healed with Qigong and Tai Chi practices. Did it happen before or after uh, the shoulder? You know, the, the original back problem started before and then the back injury healed after. I, after I was able to actually understand how it, how it worked, I was able to not only apply it with my patients, I was actually able to apply it again with myself 
in right. different in different areas of my body. Right. So basically, the same principles work to stro towards shoulders, neck, lower back, and other parts of the body. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> would you share with us the principles that you discovered? Well, the three. First of all, the all of the principles of Qigong and Tai Chi are so incredibly rich. Was the was really the first thing that I really wanted to investigate the the postural alignment, the slow, fluid, and rounded movements, the uh, moving from the Dantian, uh, mindful weight shifting, all of the using the imagery and the symbolism, which is kind of inherent to Qigong and Tai Chi also, and the lighthearted nature of things. So these principles. I went deep and investigated the, the physiological responses to every one of those principles. First of all, I wanted to know when we did one of those things, what happened physiologically that stimulated a healing response in the body? So that's, that's the first thing I did, because I wanted to be able to map it and, and explain it to doctors that I was working with, the Western doctors that I was working with, and Western physical therapists, and Western medical professionals. Because for them, those are those breadcrumbs, essentially, that we needed. Well, so uh, the principles that you mentioned were moving from the center to the mm -hmm. periphery. Basically, that's what we would also refer to as the waves radiating yeah. from the end, uh, to the periphery of the body. Uh, you also mentioned the uh, smooth, rounded, circular movements. Mm -hmm. uh, what other principles did you discover? Well, the, certainly, you know, one of the most fascinating ones is the, and, and the simplest and the primary one is, our, is that upright posture. The looking at the posture from a perspective of, you know, what we call tensegrity. First of all, are you right. familiar with tensegrity? Very much so, yeah. Yeah. So the idea of tensegrity and that actually are, and there's. Well, a, I, I may be familiar with tensegrity. It doesn't mean that our listeners, listeners are. Listeners are. Yeah. Perhaps and share a little bit about the principles. Yeah, so tensegrity is this idea of, uh, of Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome idea, which is kind of compression. So if you, look, if you think about a building, a skyscraper, a skyscraper is based on kind of gravity compression to hold its structure. And as soon as that skyscraper, if it went off angle a little bit, then gravity, it would succumb to gravity and collapse to the ground. Where uh, a camping tent, you know, a camping tent that has, you, you can, poof, a freestanding tent, and you take it and you can turn it in any position or shape, and it'll, or any position rather, and it'll hold its shape. It's not dependent on gravity because the forces are expansive forces from internally versus compressive forces from externally. Well, so two points. One is that um, the tent is very light mm -hmm. as compared to the weight of the building. Right. And so... Uh, the weight of the tent is not going to collapse the structure because the strength of the structure is capable of withstanding much greater weight than the weight of the tent itself. Yes. And uh, the weight of the building is such that the structure will not be able to support it if the uh, pressure is not applied along the uh, vectors of the pillars. Right. So basically, if the pillars are misaligned, just like the bones in our bodies can be misaligned mm -hmm. if we're not paying attention to that, then something will have to compensate for the weakness. Basically, the muscles will have to kick in. So it's not like the body is going to collapse immediately because we may be able to compensate for the misalignment of the bones by tensing up the muscles, but then something is going to start happening. We're going to burn energy. Muscles mm -hmm. are never as strong as bones. Right. So, so 
will probably be less balanced. Basically, the center of mass of the building needs to be on top of the center of the footprint of the building. Mm -hmm. If the epicenter of the weight, uh, center mass of the building is on the edge or beyond the edge of the footprint of the building, it's going to collapse. Right. Well, the same thing happens with the human body, right? Mm -hmm. If the center of mass of the human body is close to the edge of the footprint, basically it's going to be difficult to stand. It's difficult to stand, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, there, and actually, that's a really great, really great analogy and point that you're making, Lama. It's fantastic. There's a, um, a, a researcher by the name of, actually, he's also an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Stephen Levine, who talks about what's called biotensegrity. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Stephen Levine's work or not. I'm, I'm not. Um, I remember uh, somebody was applying the principle of tensegrity to the human body probably way beyond, uh, b before Levine, uh, who was... Um, uh, also, one of my teachers, uh, Carlos Castaneda. Yeah, he even uh, produced several videos and, and published uh, a book or two about uh, the practices he calls integrity as well. Yeah, and, and yes, exactly. And one of the things I find just fascinating about this work is, especially when we look at the spine, that the old view of the spine is that the the spine is a compressive structure and that the discs are meant to be supportive devices between the vertebrae. And some of the work that Levine did with cadavers actually is that when they cut the posterior and anterior longitudinal ligaments, the ligaments that go up on either side of the spine, the spine actually doesn't collapse, it springs apart. That the spine actually naturally is in a constant state of expansion, not compression. And the ligaments are there to not stop it from collapsing, but to stop it from coming apart which is one of those ideas in, that, in the Tai Chi and Qigong posture, the settling of the tail, the rising of the head, that we are actually also activating what the spine is doing naturally, which is to separate or create space between the vertebral segments between the discs. Well, uh, actually, what you're describing possible under two conditions. It's either you're lying horizontally or suspended upside down, basically, so that the weight of your torso would not be compressing the uh, discs and spaces between the vertebrae. Or, as an alternative, we can at least stop tensing up the mu muscles yeah. between the vertebrae, the multifidi and rotatoris and other muscles uh, stabilizers. If they're too tense, they will basically compress the disc. They pull the disc on both sides, basically compressing our, our spine and making us shorter. And so if we just simply stop tensing our stabilizers so much and allow them to lengthen, then it also will increase the distance between the vertebrae, which will make us taller, and perhaps also alleviate some back pain. Yeah, exactly, which is so, and that's amazing because what you've just talked about there is how I talk about in terms of that idea of sung, you know, the active relaxation principles that when we actively relax the, the stabilizing muscles, the mobilizing muscles, we continue to just our body would naturally become more upright. It'll naturally lengthen, it'll naturally expand more, which creates more circulation, which creates more uh, better bioflow of all kinds of fluids, better flow of uh, neurological information through the foraminal segments. It's just, it's, it's really fantastic. So that's one of the other principles I really talk about a lot with my students is that idea of sung or active, active relaxation. 
Fantastic. Well, we seem to be on the same track, on the same path, on the same page, as it were. Uh, now, how how about some other principles? So, song is obviously an important principle, principle of active relaxation. Uh, perhaps it can be facilitated through certain breathing exercises, through body alignment, uh, mm -hmm. awareness, and uh, perhaps some adjustments that one can make. Any other principles that you said apply to both the healing of your shoulders as well as the back? Well, the other, the other one I like is song. So the idea, of ex the idea of expansion or creating more spaciousness in the body, that's uh, one of my personal favorites. When we, you know, sung and song, the, put those two things together, we have the act of relaxation and we create spaciousness in the body that opens up room in the joint systems for uh, synovial flow. It decompresses abnormal wear or tear on the joints. It helps correct what we call positional faults at the joints where the bones may have uh, subtle misalignments or those kinds of things that can cause excess wear on the joint systems, allows more room for fluidity, for vascular flow. Yeah, and, and obviously subluxations on the spine. The, and your shoulders, uh, I understand you said that you basically dislocated your shoulders. Actually and separated. I had, I had a separation at the acromioclavicular joints right there on both sides. Interesting. So that essentially created the condition probably in which the muscles uh, contracted, uh, trying to keep the joint from falling apart. Basically, that's what we would also refer to as a sprain. And so then it was essentially creating a condition under which uh, there was less space in the joint than would be helpful uh, for mobility. And so that essentially immobilized the joint and also squeezed the synovial fluid from mm -hmm. between the space and the bones so that it wasn't lubricated and any movement essentially created grinding effect. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, excessive compression in the joint, um, of course, some uh, you know, swelling in the joint, which creates more challenges and more compression. You know, the, there's systems around the, the shoulder itself that are very tight, very small, not much room for things to move like the, like the rotator cuff. And when you have any uh, loss of movement or loss of space in those areas, you can excessive or compensatory trauma in those areas as well. Right. The reason I'm talking about it is because uh, not so long ago, I actually injured my own shoulder. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, only one. Uh, I was showing up. I only get injured when I show up. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing one arm push up. And uh, the one side worked out just fine. The other side didn't work so well. I actually felt like I couldn't push up um, and something was going on with the shoulder that was kind of hurting. And so uh, for probably four weeks after that, I also had a hard time lifting my arm. Mm -hmm. uh, like I was joking that the movement to get my hand into my side pocket was difficult. Like I couldn't pull out the wallet. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> when I would, would eat out, uh, I would say, sorry, my friend, You'll have to pay for me because I can't <laughs> movements to pull the wallet out of my pocket. <laughs> but uh, I actually also went through similar rehabilitation myself. So I know kind of from inside out what it feels like to experience this and also how amazing it is to heal from this type of trauma. Now, what other types of, of principles uh, have you discovered so far uh, through your process? Well, the, 
Yeah, so the, the um, thanks, thank you for asking. The, um, the primary three principles that we use with all of our rehabilitative Qigong and Tai Chi processes are, they're basically the three intentful corrections. We just rename them just a little bit. We talk about what we call body, breath, and vision principles. The three things we focus on are body, breath, and vision. And we call them body, breath, and vision, again, because they're a little more palatable to a, a Western mind, to someone who's in a typical Western rehabilitation process, which is kind of what my, my mission is. My mission is to be able to bridge this gap and bring these you know, body-mind holistic practices into our Western or modern healthcare system, because there's, yeah. so much, there's so much value there, there's so much usefulness there, and, and it can really help to speed healing, cut costs, get people back to their lives faster, and not only their physical lives faster, but their emotional lives, their spiritual lives, their lives of meaning, their lives of purpose, we can get we can help people in so many different ways with these very simple practices, right? I mean, they they really affect so many different body systems. Well, absolutely. If the person is no longer depressed, for example, they will also stop taking antidepressant pills mm -hmm. if they were taking any, or if they didn't take any, at least they will become more productive, probably have better relationships, probably have greater creativity. So, in other words, every aspect of life improves almost simultaneously. Yeah, and it's crazy. We see it. We actually see it like all the time. We see it we, when we work with when we work with our patients. We we see it constantly. Those are consistent results that we see right along. And folks are always really mystified by that. But for us, it's we expect it because we know that that's that's a part of the journey. That's a part of the process. Yeah, that's that's how it works. So uh, those uh, intentful corrections of mm -hmm. the posture, of breath and vision. Mm -hmm. uh, we dive into each of them one by one? Absolutely. So the, for each one of the different gestures that we teach, so if we look at, say, the neck and shoulder program again, and there's, there's 13 gestures in the neck and shoulder program going all the way from what we call an acute, an acute process all the way up to a chronic process. In other words, you, you know, you're just injured and you can't lift your arms above your shoulders, and then in the middle you, you can get to your shoulders, and then here at the end you can get your hands above your shoulders. So we have that process. So for each one of those movements, we break one, each one of the movements down into those three principles. We teach people specifically what to do with their bodies, number one. And the really cool thing is that for every time we have an injury in our body, whether it's our shoulders, whether it's our knees, whether it's our hip, whether it's our back, our body actually does a very predictable thing. Our body will, will activate something predictably and it'll deactivate something predictably. And that's based on what we call your neuromuscular profiles or you're mobilizing versus stabilizing muscle groups. And all the time, the mobilizers will activate to splint and the stabilizers will go offline because that's just, that's just how it works. The mobilizers, what we call inhibit the, the stabilizers from functioning. Now, go ahead. And, and also what's interesting about that is the inhibition of functioning of stabilizers uh, then has to also be compensated by engaging mobilizers to do the job of stabilizer muscles. And stabilizers are basically what we call core muscles. Right. Like a lot of people confuse core muscles for um, something like pretty uh, superficial. For example, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to do some sit-ups because I want to build my abs. I need stronger core. Right. And I say, really? What informed the opinion that abs are core muscle? Well, 
my Pilates instructor told me. Well, <laughs> the Pilates instructor doesn't know what he's talking about because abs, by definition, are not core muscles. Right. However, you may engage your core muscles if you know what you're doing, but it's not going to be probably sit-ups the way that you're doing sit-ups. It's going to be a similar but slightly different modified exercise, a lot slower, and also going through much less range of motion because stabilizers don't move that much. <laughs> exactly. Um, that obviously is a really important principle that you're describing right now, uh, working with the uh, splintering of the mobilizers and the uh, deactivation of stabilizers. So, and what do you do to uh, to reverse this condition, so to speak. Yeah, right, exactly. And great example of that. You're, you're right on the money with it. The, um, so there's relationships of mobilizers and stabilizers all over the body, including the neck and the shoulders, as well as the core, like, you know, as you indicated, and even down as far as into your ankles. So with the neck and shoulder program, for, for instance, we've chosen movements, you know, body, body stuff or movements that specifically will decrease the influence of the mobilizers and activate the influence of the stabilizers because that's the that's the relationship that we want to create we want to balance that relationship back out so there's certain movements that we do in therapy in, in western pt stuff there's certain movements that we do to specifically do that what i did was i went and looked at dozens if not hundreds of different qigong and tai chi movements and analyzed them from a biomechanical perspective and looked at which movements actually did what I wanted them to do, which was to decrease mobilizer influence and activate stabilizer influence based on my knowledge of Western physical therapy. And so that's, that's what we do with the body movements. And so we specifically, for every one of our programs, I've specifically done those analyses for each movement to make sure that's the relationship that we're getting, that the whole time we're recreating the proper proportion of mobilizer versus stabilizer activation, because then we'll have normal joint function, normal joint movement, and, and, then, and then no pain. Right? So the body movements specifically are designed around that principle. And then of course we use the slow fluid you know, movements because of what we know that does to us ourselves physiologically as well. Right, and slow movement also allows the person to be much more mindful mm -hmm. about how they move. Because exactly. a lot of times people think, oh, I'm gonna do, uh, 10 repetitions of this move and they're paying attention to the number rather than to how each uh, movement is performed and so basically going for something really superficial like how many times I've done this it really makes, makes no difference it can do 10 times or two times as long as you do it in a way that is helpful you better probably do it fewer times and pay maximum attention and that's probably one of the uh, key transformations that people experience in your program I would imagine because a lot of people uh, living a, a modern western lifestyle are not particularly mindful mm -hmm. and even if they're mindful in terms of paying attention to the present moment maybe but they may not be mindful towards their own body mm -hmm. and often uh, when, when I work with my clients uh, they also learn how to pay attention to something, uh, for example, like the edge of the comfort zone. Yeah. Becoming mindful of the edge of the comfort zone is extremely beneficial because you're going to experience much less self-injury or you will not re-injure yourself if you don't push yourself over the edge of the comfort zone. But that's what a lot of people do when they do exercises. 
it, even rehabilitative exercises, I would imagine you have some kind of approach helping people to basically make sure that they don't hurt themselves doing those practices. Yeah, that, that's perfect. I actually call it the yellow zone. We have the, the red zone is the no pain, no gain zone. And the, the green zone is your like freezing your body and praying to God that your problem goes away zone. And the yellow zone is, is in between. So we want to be in that yellow zone where we're moving right to the edge of where that red zone would start, but never going past it. So we're nudging it. We're just kind of just nudging it. And then as we come away, we go to the other side and, and nudge it in whatever direction we want to. But we know that that nudging, actually, the nudging and not the forcing will actually create more trust within the nervous system itself to allow you to go farther the next time and then the next time and then the next time. Exactly. In a sense, it's like eroding the edge of the comfort zone. Mm -hmm. The more time you spend exploring the edge of your comfort zone, the more you get used to being there. And by doing so, actually, the comfort zone expands. Uh -huh. And also interesting that uh, the culture movement becomes very different because most people try to reach for something that is outside of the comfort zone. Like they have desire to move further or like be more flexible or have greater range of motion or, or some other things that reside outside of our comfort zone. Basically all our dreams and aspirations seem to be beyond our comfort zone in most cases. Mm. That's why we'll call them dreams because we still haven't manifested them right. yet. Well, so basically people often push themselves over the edge into discomfort and pain. Still probably didn't reach what they were looking for or even they got it, but they're in pain now. And so they retract, come back to the comfort zone to recuperate, recharge. Maybe if they didn't get what they wanted, they will barge again, push themselves over the edge, again, create some uh, injury or uh, hurt themselves in the one way or another, and come back again, basically creating cyclical crisis in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And what I've seen happen is that the, that that edge where the yellow zone and the red zone meet when, when we, when people do exactly what you're describing, that zone actually retracts. It keeps retracting, keeps retracting, keeps retracting until people are literally stuck someplace and their, their movement is so small and limited because the, the threshold, their pain threshold has kind of shrunk so far that they can't move beyond that really limited space anymore because they've continued to push beyond it and push beyond it and push beyond it each time. Right. And so the solution often is in changing the direction at 90 degrees angle. So instead of pushing yourself over the edge, you actually change the direction at 90 degrees and start moving parallel to the edge. Mm -hmm. And as you're moving parallel to the edge, often you will experience much more circular movement because that's usually how our comfort zone is, kind of more or less circular. And so you basically start exploring the circular quality of movement which by the time you're done practicing also feels like, well, you extended the comfort zone or extended the range of motion, even though you were not pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. Basically, you were just hurting that edge. I, I, I love that example. I've never heard that example before. I think that's a really great way to look at it. I like that. That's that part of the arcing movement. That's what we're doing. And it makes perfect sense. And now that you said it, it's like, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> that, that's a really great example. Yeah, this is what I call harmonious culture of movement. Basically, you, you create greater harmony for yourself because you're not hurting yourself. But at the same time, you're not stuck in the middle of your comfort zone, hoping that you will not hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. You are actually living as fully as you can. And by the time, but by the way, when we are stuck in the middle of the comfort zone, we often 
are underwhelmed because we basically are not really uh, operating at full capacity. But if we push ourselves over the edge of the comfort zone into discomfort and pain, we are overwhelmed with the discomfort and basically we are not happy. It's interesting how being on the, uh, in the yellow zone or an edge of the comfort zone is essentially is the condition for feeling slow. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, last year I interviewed a, a well-known uh, psychologist, uh, Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, mm-hmm. who, who wrote several books on the subject of flow, and him and I had this really fascinating conversation about the exact same idea that operating on the, uh, in the sweet spot. Yeah. Are you not pushing yourself into discomfort so you don't overwhelm yourself, but you're not underwhelmed either and bored. Mm-hmm. You are actually operating in that yellow zone, if you call it that way. And uh, basically, that's where you feel the flow the most. And that's one of the secrets of my art of being in the flow. Basically, that's how you find the flow. Even if you are not rehabilitating, if you want to perform at peak, you also will find the flow in that uh, precarious balance between comfort and discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that edge is like, that's the, that's exactly the sweet spot. And it's why we move, as you mentioned before, move slowly because it allows us the sensitivity to know when we're actually getting close to tipping over it. So many times when we first learning this and I've done this myself, you go past it and that's how you learn where it was by going right by going into the red zone. You're like, Oh, I just passed it. And the more experience you get with this, and the slower you go, you can actually feel it approaching. So you, you, can, you can test the boundaries a little bit more safely because you're in control, you're moving slowly, you're doing it in a fluid way. Of course, you're also using your breath to help mitigate some of the physiological responses that occur when you get close to that red zone. You know, generally, our breath will shorten, we'll have, a, we'll have a little bit of a gasp, we'll have a tightening of the, the thoracic spaces, the heart may even kind of shorten its beat just a little bit. So those things happen as we anticipate meeting that red zone. Yeah, you're so kind of feeling a little bit of adrenaline rush. Yeah. So when we use breath mindfully as we're, as we're approaching that zone, we can manage our physiological adaptations to that and open ourselves up to healing possibilities as we go to the edge and expansive possibilities rather than shutting down in anticipation or fear. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, this is one of the principles of my art uh, as well, learning how to relax under pressure. Because essentially you experience some degree of pressure. Maybe it's not somebody pressing you, you're essentially creating your own self-induced stress in a sense, but you are learning how to function better in the conditions of stress and mitigate stress so much so that you no longer consider it a harmful stress because not all stress is bad. As a matter of fact, if we never experience stress, we're probably going to be living our lives very, uh, uh, not very fully. Uh, what, would you be, what would you say? You would not be able to live your life fully if you never experienced any stress because you're just living inside your comfort zone. So you're kind of constantly underwhelmed. Yeah, and, you, and you'd actually get really sick <laughs> too, right? The, that, the, we know that, the, that stress is really important for a healthy physiology but everything in balance, right? We're talking about the art of balance and harmony. We want to be in that sweet spot for our whole life so that we're experiencing the stress and the eustress in different, in different points. Right, and develop the ability to function well 
even though there is some degree of discomfort or stress. And that's actually where we feel the flow the most. That those are the times when we that we remember the best. It's mm. like people don't remember things that were particularly stress-free. Usually they experience some degree of challenge, and those are the times when we feel like we're living more fully. Mm -hmm. And those challenging times often also allow us to expand our skills or capabilities or achieve some things that we previously couldn't achieve. Basically, we actually reach out for those dreams that used to be outside of our comfort zone and mm -hmm. manage to start living our dreams. That's also a psychological component of this practice. You mentioned that you combine the physical, uh, breathing, and uh, the psychological alignments or vision. Mm. Now, wh what about vision? What, what is it um, that inspired you to use this term? Oh, so really great question. So the, the reason we use vision specifically is because we have lots of research to support it. And it's, again, it's just those breadcrumbs. We, can, we look at uh, the research around actually when you do visual scanning practices, like if you, you know, if you look with your eyeballs to the left, you actually have a firing of muscles in your cervical spine, thoracic spine, lumbar spine, all the way down to your lower extremities that are associated with visual scanning alone. So what we, what we want to be able to do is to help teach, you know, rehab professionals and our clients to say, if we want to help activate, say, for instance, if neck rotation to the left is limited for someone, then what we have them do is we have them lead with their eyes as they move to the left, doing it, looking, you know, doing a gesture like swimming dragon or, or cloud hands perhaps, but watching the hand go over there because we know that the visual scanning will actually help to activate and balance out that mobilizer versus stabilizer relationship in the neck. So it's one more thing that we can do to help correct that, that relationship. So that's one aspect we look at is with actually with visual scanning. The other part of that we look at with vision is visualization. And we look a lot at the science of what actually happens to our, our physiology when we, visualize, when we do visualization practices in and of themselves. And we know that there's great research around balance, around strength, around skill performance, around immune function, around being able to change skin temperature, all those things when you do specific visualization practices that we can change our physiology. And of course, we're in the hopes that people will use these visualization practices for all kinds of positive things, but especially for healing, right? That's, the, that's what we do. So we incorporate visualizations along with the body movements, the breathing practices, and then vision and visualization methods that specifically help speed healing. Absolutely. And breathing works really well with visualization too. Yeah. Um, like for example, um, one of the simplest and most elegant ways to bring energy to any part of the body, I found, mm -hmm. is by imagining that you can breathe through that part of the body. Mm -hmm. You know, like, uh, uh, for example, I, I uh, see sometimes uh, people who have pain in the mid-back, and they can't really even touch that part of the body very well unless they're really flexible. And I said, fine, if you can't touch that part of the body, imagine that you're like a dolphin. You know, dolphins have the blowhole in the back. Mm -hmm. so imagine that you're like a dolphin and you can breathe through that particular part of your body. And a fascinating thing happens. As they visualize breathing through that part of the body, they bring a significant amount of attention to that part of the body. And where attention goes, energy flows. Mm -hmm. Yi dao, qi dao. You actually 
facilitate much greater empowerment of that specific area of the body by simply imagining it can breathe through. And of course, it can work not only with the back, but with neck, with shoulders, with arms, legs, pretty much any part of the body. Mm -hmm. You can visualize, you can breathe through it, and voila, you actually start empowering it right on the fly. Absolutely. And that's, those are the key things that we build into our practices also. We focus on whatever area needs to, to have that attention, to have that healing, to have the whatever change we want to make, whether it's bringing warmth to the area, whether it's bringing um, you know, healing to the area, whether it's bringing blood flow to the area, whether it's bringing immune function to the area, whether it's just bringing some forgiveness to the area. Right? We, we use the body, breath, and vision practices to help do that, to help drive the whole body healing processes. Fantastic. All right. And uh, about the breathing, by the way, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about breathing, even among Qigong and Tai Chi practitioners. Mm. And uh, I'm curious about your perspective on breathing and uh, how you use it in therapeutic applications. Well, I, I, I agree with you 100%. There's so many different people have so many different things to say about breathing. And I think, I think they're all valid. I think if someone's coming from a perspective where they understand what they're doing, and they can support what they're doing, then, then I'm not going to question what someone's doing in that regard. But what we, how we move in this way, in my experience anyway, we really try to keep it very, very simple for people. And what we really do is work on in, you know, inhaling primarily through the nose. We want to help to stimulate baroreceptors, mechanoreceptors in the system. You know, we inhale through the nose. There's, there's receptors inside of the nasal passages that affect our cardiac function, affect our brainwave function, affect our breathing rate. So we want to be able to help feed those receptors really good, accurate information about what's going on externally and transferring to internally, again, to stimulate healing processes. And then we focus quite a bit on exhalate, exhaling through the, through the nose, but also through the mouth and generally through a pursed lip breathing process. We want to really accentuate what we call long, slow, and deep exhalations. Mm -hmm. Many of the people we work with, and I think many of the people in, in the country in general, maybe in, maybe in the world in general, don't breathe deeply. They breathe in, in shallow ways. And through my, all my years of trying to teach people how to do abdominal breathing or deeper breathing, when I would focus extensively on the inhalation and trying to teach people to breathe into their belly, as soon as they breathe in, they breathe into their chest because that's what they've been habituated to do. But when we have them exhale completely and have them empty their lungs as much as they can in a slow, progressive manner, the next breath almost has to be an abdominal breath because they've emptied their lungs completely. So the next breath is going to refill the lungs. And I love it. It's one of these Tao things. In order to refill something completely, first you must empty it completely. Right, exactly. And also, uh, one of the fascinating things about breath that uh, some of our listeners and viewers may be able to benefit from as well is uh, learning how to utilize more than one diaphragm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have more diaphragms than thoracic diaphragm only. Most people don't know about the existence of those diaphragms, so no wonder they probably don't use them very much. But for example, um, the pelvic diaphragm mm -hmm. is very helpful in breathing as well. And uh, I, I'm curious if you have any protocols or uh, instruct any of your patients or clients 
or students uh, as to how to use the pellet diaphragm? We, we do actually, in, uh, specifically in the Rehabilitative Tai Chi for Core and Spine Stability Program, we go into great depth in terms of coordinating function between the pelvic diaphragm and the abdominal diaphragm. Mm -hmm. Be because again, the, the crux of that program itself is to re, you know, encourage better neuromuscular control of the core system. And the pelvic floor is a part of that core system and the abdominal diaphragm, I'm sorry, and the thoracic diaphragm is also a part of that core system. That's the, those are the top and bottoms of that core system. So we want to get those two diaphragms working in better coordination, better function, which supports the deep transverse abdominis and which supports the multifidi better for core control. So that program, we spend a lot of time working specifically on those two areas. Great. Uh, so for example, one of the uh, breathing protocols that uh, some Tai Chi and Qigong and martial arts teachers teach is what they call the reverse breathing. Mm -hmm. Now, I have very strong suspicions about reverse breathing, and I personally don't use it and never teach it to anyone. But um, uh, I'm curious if you have any experience with it and or opinion about it. Yeah, and actually that is one of the breath processes we do teach in the, in the core and spine stability program. And the, the little asterisk that we put by it is that I personally, in my experience and my professional experience, don't believe that reverse breathing is something that we want to do all the time. It's not something that we, we want to do during throughout the day as a, as a normal breath process. But what I've discovered with my own back injury and my own chronic back pain, as well as helping other people, is that when we do have an issue, like something falls out of the closet or something falls off the back of the truck or we slip, we slip we can never, we don't really have the option of deciding whether we're going to be on the inhalation or the exhalation when some, when a force comes into our body externally. So I'm of the mind that if we can at least introduce to people and teach to people the ability to do proper, proper core contraction, not, not mobilized bracing, but deep core contraction on either the inhalation or the exhalation, can be very helpful for people in mitigating the possibility of injuring their spine. Okay, and so how does it connect with uh, a reversal breathing? Well, so the, way the, the way I teach it is with classic abdominal breathing, or what we call functional abdominal breathing. Typically, the inhalation, we relax the, the core muscles, if you will, relax the pelvic floor. And on the exhalation, we are contracting the pelvic floor. And then and then on reverse abdominal breathing, it's just the opposite. So on the, on the inhalation, we are contracting the, the pelvic floor and the diaphragm. On the exhalation, we're relaxing it. I see. Okay. So essentially, you're not talking about uh, distending and, and uh, sucking in the stomach uh, in the reverse in relation to uh, your cycle of breath. You're just talking about the pelvic diaphragm proper. Because I hear some bogus ideas about uh, sucking in the stomach while you're inhaling and distending the stomach while you're exhaling. And of course, people really having a hard time doing that. And when those who manage to accomplish that usually hurt themselves by doing so. I personally experienced that injury myself. That's why I'm so passionate about <laughs> dissuading my listeners and viewers from engaging in this type of uh, debilitating practices. But uh, Please continue about your 
Right. Yeah. And I agree. We don't focus necessarily on the abdomen distending and contracting. We focus on everything starting at the pelvic floor and then allowing a wave of contraction to come up into the transverse abdominis and into the multifidi, which is typically what people experience when they do these practices that are focused on the pelvic diaphragm. So there's actually, there's not a large excursion of movement that occurs in the, in the abdominal wall when you do these practices. Not like you get a large distension and a large contraction necessarily, but we are focusing on contracting the pelvic floor and allowing the stabilization through the core musculature to come up a little bit higher. And again, we just teach people both on the inhalation and the exhalation to be able to do that because I feel once again, we never get the choice to decide where we're going to be on an inhalation or an exhalation when something happens from the external environment. Unless you practice martial arts, because obviously when you have the opportunity to kind of put yourself through the paces, for example, through the practice of martial arts, you realize that you do have the choice. Mm. Somebody is going to hit you. You have a choice whether to freeze, to contract, to relax, to inhale, to exhale, see what kind of results you get. If you get the results from doing it one way and compare it to the results that happen when you do it the other way, you can compare and see which results you like better. Mm -hmm. Then you may be able to learn, well, if I want these results better, then doing that thing and hoping to get these results would be insanity. So then you just do the same thing. You basically right. do which leads to the right results. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're so the same result for everyone. Basically, people have a variety of, of uh, different things that they're looking for. And so they may actually experience uh, that the same thing leads them to different results because they're not the same person. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Great point. Yeah. So, for example, when uh, you, you receive a, a strike in martial arts or if you receive a strike, for example, let's say falling off the bicycle. For one person, that may be um, more beneficial to hold the breath. Mm -hmm. Another person, that may be more beneficial to exhale. Or another person, it would be more beneficial to inhale. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that one of them is right and the other one is wrong. I'm going to say, let's test and find out what works best for you. For you, right. Even though I know what's going to work for me, but I'm not going to impose my opinion that, that they should do the same way. I, even if they, I know what's going to work best for them, I'm still going to invite them to test because then it will give them an opportunity to actually experience it, experiment, and have the first-hand kind of decision-making process under their belt. And, and then once they reinvented the wheel, they will never forget how it works. So basically, they will be able to apply this in their daily life much more likely than if I tell them, you know, some authority figure told them, oh, you should do it this way. You know, people have internal resistance, or they may have some issues with authority figures, or maybe they'll just forget it because they get distracted. They just never actually internalize this knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. That's why we're of the mind. We give people lots of different resources and then ask them to explore it and, explore it and experience it for themselves so that they can make the best choice on it. Of course, we help guide them in the proper application and use of all those things so that they can really have a rich experience from it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, can you share with us a little bit more about the variety of applications of your uh, therapeutic modality? Does it apply only to rehabilitation from injuries? Uh, 